I V M. Imagine India in 1952. It's five years after independence, the partition, the first Indo-Pakistan War, and three years since the Constitution of India was adopted. The literacy rate was around 12 percent. Now think about the first Indian elections. 172 million people voted in them, and this was the largest elections held anywhere in the world at that point in time. Here's a simple question: Why did people show up? How did officials prepare the electoral rolls? How did they enroll people in border areas? Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy, a podcast on international relations and global affairs. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. This week we're going to be talking about the first elections that were held in India between 1951 and 1952. This may not seem like a typical foreign policy episode to you, but it's important to talk about the first elections in India because it gives us new insights on new democracies and the difficulties in adopting new systems. My guest on today's show is Ornit Shani. Ornith is a senior lecturer at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of Haifa. She is the author of the book How India Became Democratic: Citizenship and the Making of the Universal Franchise. Let's tune into my conversation with Ornith after a short break. Hello everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So if you guys haven't been checking our Instagram, you should take a look at the audiograms. We're giving you excerpts from different shows. This is available both on our stories and on our feed. Also, we put these audiograms up on Facebook and Twitter as well. So I mean, like, do kind of keep an eye out for them. You kind of enjoy them, I think. Our Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Abuzar Akhtar, who talks about his difficult journey from a businessman in Dubai to a playback singer in Bollywood. Film producer and close friend of mine, Kuki Gulati, also joins in to talk about his discovery of Abuzar. You should also check out episode three fifty of Cyrus Says, which was an AMA special. It featured a roundtable of other IVM hosts like Varun Dugirala of Advertising Instead, Naren Chinoy from Simplified, Dinkar Duvedi from Geek Fruit, and of course me and Abbas. Anirudh Kanishetti is back with season two of Echoes of India from the 27th of March. On the first episode of the season, Anirudh is going to start from where he left off. The rise of the Gupta Empire. New episodes are out every Wednesday. On Pulia Bazi, Pranay and Saurabh talk to Disha Malik and Kavita Devi, who run Khabar Laharia, a woman-run rural media network in UP. On Noir Kanun, Ambarana is joined by wife and model Hasleen Kaur to talk about the safety of women in the entertainment industry. On football twaddle, Saru and Kanav talk about last week's FA Cup and EPL action as the race for the title and top four heats up. On Thalle Harate last week, Uday Kumar joins hosts Pawan and Ganesh to discuss the oldest inscription stone in Bengaluru, which opens the historical understanding of the city. On the Sponge podcast, Ambi Parmeshwaran talks about the time when he was invited to present tax collection and communication strategies. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Hi, Anit. Welcome to the show. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me. All right. Can you tell me how you started writing the book on the first Indian? The process behind the first Indian elections. Your earlier book was on communalism and Gujarat. Um, so, how did that shift occur? So, so there was kind of a process that led to that. Um, you know, when I finished communalism, caste, and Hindu nationalism, the violence in Gujarat, I I realized that I did not dedicate enough space in the book for the question of Muslims, Muslim citizenship in India, because I was I started to ask myself. What is the stake that Muslims have in the nation to still feel belong in the wake of violence, etc.? And I started to look at citizenship, 
particularly Muslim citizenship, at independence. And, you know, at that context, I was starting to think about citizenship, election, democratic citizenship, and I was thinking about the fact that this is when there were the preparations for the first elections. So so that was one side of starting to think about this question. But what it coincided with is I've been participating in this conference of election commissioners from Mm -hmm. the Commonwealth. And in that context, I started to ask senior election officials from India how India prepared uh, the first list of voters on the basis of adult suffrage. I knew that earlier under the British, there was no democracy. It was representative institution with 30 million people mm. voted. The electorate in the first election was more than 173 million people. They said, oh, it's all in the report on the first elections. I went to the okay. official report. Over two pages, there are a few paragraphs that says the Constituted Assembly made some decisions, preliminary work from November 47. I went to the debates, constitutional debates. I couldn't find anything. I tried to find materials in archives, couldn't find anything until I persuaded the Election Commission to check whether perhaps there are records in their record room. Mm -hmm. And Sure enough, at the very back of their basement of the record room, there was a pile of files covered in thick dusts, and these were the files. So these are the files of, of the bureaucrat who managed the preparation of the first electoral roll on the basis of universal adult franchise. It's now, all these materials are now in the National Archives of India and accessible to everyone. Wow, that's a brilliant origin story behind your book. When you think about the first elections, it's such, so many people and this radical notion of universal adult suffrage, unlike countries in the West that gradually started giving people uh, voting rights, first women and then maybe people of color over here. Who ran the elections? Who were the people behind the scenes of the first elections? So the people behind the scene of the preparatory work, right? Because the first elections took place between 21st October 1951 into Mm. February 1952. But the preparatory work, a very complex work, and particularly the preparation of the first draft electoral roll on the universe, on the basis of adult franchise, was managed and by a new interim bureaucratic body. This was the Constitute Assembly Secretariat. The Constitute Assembly had a secretariat and particularly it had ultimately a franchise branch. It was really headed by the constitutional advisor, B.N. Rao, the joint secretary of the secretariat, S.N. Mukherjee, the undersecretary, uh, P.V. Padmanabhan, and Mm. later uh, S.N. Subramaniam. They had uh, two research assistants. So it was a group of bureaucrats from Delhi who oversaw the the process. But, you know, can I say another thing about, you know, you you made the point that the franchise was given in one stroke. Mm. And, you know, it's important to stress how unobvious it was. Um, Think about the fact that women in France got the vote in 1946, only one year before Indian women got the vote. Think about the conditions of the country at the time. This is in the midst of the partition, right? The the process of preparing the list starts from November 1947, just in the midst of partition, when, you know, the country is being 
is torn apart, right? You have 18 million refugees. You have princely states that have to be integrated into the union and the conditions of 85% illiteracy, etc. Yeah, I'm wondering about the consciousness of these first-time voters. Um, I mean, they, some of them could have voted in earlier elections, but um, just the fact of did they sort of know who they were voting for or why they were voting or uh, what issues they were voting for? Because this is still um, a span of what five years is in a, for a change in administration would have not impacted a lot of people's lives by if you go down to the very roots of villages because administration at the end of the day stays the same. So what do you think of the consciousness of the first-time voters? So, you know, I think that I think the important thing is to look at, and that's what I'm doing in the book, is in fact prior to the first elections. Mm. Because in order to be a voter, mm. to become a voter, to get the right to vote, to get the universal franchise, and that's the story the book is telling. The book is telling the story of how India made the universal franchise. You have to be a voter, mm. meaning you have to be on a list. You have mm. to be on the list of voters. And I think the consciousness of being a voter started with being on the list first, mm-hmm. first of all. And, and it's this successful operation of enlisting, of enumerating all the adult population under these, uh, you know, very tough, uh, conditions that brought in this consciousness, something that played role in, um, the formation of a conscience of being a voter and the importance of the right to vote is, I would say, two things that are worth mentioning. One is the secretariat, the Constituent Assembly Secretariat understood that they do have to communicate to people mm-hmm. what they're doing, right? Because, you know, administrators would, would walk around and register people, etc. So truly in, say, rural areas, enumerators were instructed to come two weeks in advance to a village to tell people we're going to come, that's we're going to do, etc. But because people were also suspicious about mm. states' enumeration, they realized that they have to tell the public what they do. And the way they do it, they um, publish very long press notes in a form of a story, story telling the people, this is what we're doing and how it's going to happen. Someone will come to your house and, you know, and enumerate you, etc. And this is being reported in the newspapers. And there is a, a kind of a dynamic process of storytelling, the preparation mm-hmm. of the roles through press notes, through the press, in the vernacular languages. And this is a process that contributes to people starting to imagine what a polity based on universal franchise would mean. How do I know that? Or do we know that? Because people begin to send letters mm-hmm. and about the ideas mm-hmm. they have about universal franchise or proposals they have. So that's one way of building up that conscience. The second, and this is how it enters the imagination, Mm. you can say, of people. The second is because, in fact, it's not that enumeration was just, you know, happening smoothly. Mm. You can imagine that not all enumerators would just happily register in villages, Mm. Dalits, or simply everyone. Mm. And there were problems with interpreting the instructions. Sometimes it was not out of bad intentions. It, mm. it was out of, um, you know, wrong interpretation, etc. And what is happening, people begin to understand, and especially it starts with partition refugees. Mm. 
their status as citizens is very unclear. I mean, in fact, who's an Indian was mm. an open question at the time. They understand that being on the electoral roll was the way of establishing some kind of stake in the national citizenship. And the reason was that the criteria for being on the roll, there were very three basic criteria. You had to be 21. You had to be a citizen and a resident 180 days where you're being registered. Of course, there was no citizenship. It mm. was done in anticipation of the constitution, mm. but they worked on the basis of the draft citizenship mm. provisions at the time. So people realized that being on the electoral roll meant like, oh, it was the most concrete way mm. at the time of being a citizen. So in the context of attempts to either disenfranchise people or difficulties to be registered, people report about it and people and social organizations of refugees, for example, but not only, begin to struggle for a place on the electoral roll. And these iterative, ongoing interactions and struggles is another way in which this conscience is being built where... Um, on the one hand, people driving it, understanding that, you know, a place on the electoral roll mm. is not simply a place that marks their right, mm. but it's like their title deed to democracy. They're going to be the sovereigns. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, as a result of these uh, ongoing struggles where these bureaucrats at the Secretariat of the Constituent Assembly have to redress Mm. Um, and correct problems, they're mentoring local mid-level administrators into electoral democracy. And that's part of the dual process, I think, that contributes mm. to the significance of being a voter. We'll be back after a short break. Hey, Meghna, do you know how to citizen? Hey, Shreyas, do you know how to citizen? Hey, Meghna, do you know how to citizen? Hey, Shreyas, Let's just do a podcast about it. Let's do a podcast about it. A podcast is called How, How to, to Citizen. Citizen. In every episode, we get a new guest and discuss one chapter from the 8th grade civics textbook. Think about it as uh, three friends revising before a test uh, and we go back to school. There's nostalgia, there's trauma, there are lunch breaks, there are favorite teachers, there are horrible teachers, there's everything. So every Tuesday, we bring in a guest on the podcast and we ask them a very simple question. Do you know how to citizen? Uh, Meghnath, I think the question is, do you know how to citizen? But Shreyas, I'm asking you this question. Do you know how to citizen? Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. I think the enrollment process itself sounds like a nation-building exercise. What I'm curious about is how did this function in uh, border areas? It must have been a little more difficult to enroll people in tribal areas and border areas rather than, you know, like organized communities like villages or towns. So, in fact, one of the, uh, you know, I have... The, the The book tells a glorious story because, as you say, this is the first all India operation of state building because the list epitomizes the new nation state, right? Both in terms of its uh, population and territorial reach. It's all the people in the territory that is now India in one composite list. Um, 
But the last chapter of the book, which is called The Limits of Inclusion, speaks about some exceptions to enfranchisement. And one of the exceptions is the sixth schedule. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there was the exclusion from the franchise of the tribal areas of, of Assam, which is, which rep- is uh, you know, represented in the constitution as the sixth schedule. And that was already set, in fact, in the draft constitution of October 1947 and made its way into the draft constitution of February 1948, mm-hmm. that this area is going to be excluded. Mm-hmm. The tribal hilly areas of mm-hmm. Assam are going to be the frontier area is going to be excluded where the excuse was on the one hand that the population is, you know, not advanced enough or too primitive in order to have the right to vote. And also because it's a border area, you know, that was part of the excuse. What I show in the book is that, in fact, the committee for the uh, tribal area of Assam, etc., that looked into the question of reforms and franchisement there, when you look at the actual evidence that they collected when they went there to the Northeast to speak with representatives of the tribes, the representatives of the tribal people, Mm -hmm. when they were asked, what is it that you want? They actually wanted access to education, access to health and representation. They didn't get it, right? What becomes, they get it with the formation of Arunachal Mm -hmm. in the 70s. So this is where there were limits Mm -hmm. to the franchise. Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir was taken out of this operation. But otherwise, um, you know, when, when we think about how many people were excluded mm. in this operation because of the exclusion of this area, it's relatively small amount of people, which, you know, on the other hand, you can say shows us the magnitude of, of the operation. True. And I think it's also important to remember sort of the geography of India and put it in context of what's happening. Because at that point in time, Sikkim is not yet a part of India. Goa is not yet a part of India. Hyderabad must have just gone through... Um, the annexation in 48. So it it was still um, a new country at the end of the day and it was grappling with all of that. You're actually making an, a very important, um, you mentioned a very important point that when they start the operation of the preparation of the electoral rolls, there are still 552 princely states that mm-hmm. have yet to be integrated into India. The instrument of accession that many of the states signed by 15 August 1947 in so many ways enforced or entrenched the sovereignty of the ruler Mm. because the ruler only ceded on three subjects, external Mm. affairs, communication and defense. Otherwise, he was the sovereign. The Constituent Assembly Secretariat had no mandate to make decisions over um, the princely states. Not only that, at the time... There was a process of formation of unions of state, mm. like, for example, the Union of Saurashtra mm. that was formed by, you know, bringing together a few hundred mm. uh, small princely states. These unions of states at the time, some of them were, in fact, busy putting up their own constituent assemblies in order to write constitutions for themselves. Mm. Right. So. The princely states did not become simply part of India or part of the union before proper mergers Mm -hmm. took place. Some of these mergers took place at the very last stages before the constitution was finalized in very late 1949. And from that perspective, this administrative operation of enumerating everyone also 
in the princely states where so many of them were autocratic before there mm. were no even administrative districts was a means of a vehicle of integration yes because it reminds me of um the, the us i was there for the midterm elections as an mm. observer and they were saying that every single county in the us has its own election rules they don't have an election commission or the centralization that we have in india <clears throat> and that was just mind boggling to me because i can't imagine the mismatch between uh, such a system working in india which is why i can understand the scale of the problem that the bureaucrats behind this were facing um it's not only membership it's also um just the sheer job of getting all of it done and getting all of it done well in time for the elections to take place how do you think the bureaucracy handled a lot of these challenges because they come as you've mentioned with their own limitations um the bureaucracy in india is famous for being a beast that is slow and slovenly um and how do you think they took it on at, at that point in time you know i think um in large parts the success of the operation was thanks to people being very vigilant about making sure that they have a place on the electoral roll and especially people from the margins people of modest means say let's take the refugees partition refugees really drove the process of when they saw that there are uh, infringement in the instructions or problems in in their registration because the first challenge in the preparation of rolls was the registration of partition refugees because mm-hmm. partition refugees didn't meet the two basic criteria mm-hmm. i mean it wasn't clear that they're citizens that was an open question but of course they didn't have the 180 days mm-hmm. uh before you know 30th of september 1947 so there had to be some kind of a concession in order to include the refugees and the concession is the most liberal approach was to register all partition refugees on the mere declaration by them at the time that they're going to reside at the place where they're being registered and that's a solution the secretary of the constituent assembly came with but of course there was a lot of confusion over that mm-hmm. and when there are problem in the registrations you have many many uh, refugees organizations for example across assam and west bengal who immediately writes bombards the secretariat of the constituent assembly with letters mm-hmm. about these problems so it is people who complain and drive this process of saying there is a problem but it's the responsiveness mm-hmm. and accountability of the secretariat that i think then make sure that bureaucrats at lower levels are actually redressing problems correcting and um and and you know being mentored into electoral democracy they even so when they have for example when there are problems with there were lots of complaints about the reforms commissioner of assam at the time about registration they invited him to delhi they sat with him and said these are the problems these are the complaint we get this is a mistake it should be done like this so like that they issued minutes of what should be done they asked to get reports over that so it was the responsiveness and it's not simply the engagement and responsiveness it was the quickness with which they responded so letters of people and organizations would be answered very very 
quickly. So people felt that they were accounted for, that they were taken into account. And that's, I think, part of what of what made, you know, or, or built integrity into the process of management of, of elections. That's interesting. Another thing that comes to my mind is that I was just, um, so Israel also got its independence right at the same time um, and faced very similar problems. Partition. So, partition, uh, a war on the first day. How did they deal with their elections? I don't even know when Israel's first elections were held, how they prepared yeah. similar voter lists. Could you tell me a little about that? So, you know, when I when I was, you know, when I worked on the book, I thought that I should look comparatively. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing... Uh, history, politics of Israel as an academic, but I, I was very curious myself. And it's more or less at the same time, 1949. But in Israel, they simply declared seven hours of curfew. And during these seven hours of curfew in the afternoon towards the evening, registered all adults, <laughs> right? So we're talking about registering, you know, half million people, not 173 million people. So the scale is it was so different than it's like that's the answer true but that that seems to be a very effective way of um doing enrollment yeah but but again it's it's such a small country with yeah you know in some places in india they did the registration over declaring like in madras for example mm-hmm. they declared two days of like public holiday when they would ask people to stay at home and come and register but they, I think in, in Madras, they registered at the time, if I remember correctly, more than 26 or 27 million people, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh. That's okay. That's very interesting. And have you looked at um, just uh, not academically, but have you seen cases of other countries which also had to face their first elections and how they dealt with the process? So, you know, I try to look at how in other post-colonial countries, countries that, you know, received their independence more or less at the same time, how first electoral rolls were prepared. And, you know, one thing, there's no no research about it, right? It's a question that I couldn't find research about it in, in Kenya, in Nigeria, you know, where I looked at, because I do think that part of the success of um, of building good election management body in India is doing it correctly the first time because an electoral role, you know, as up-to-date and accurately as humanly possible is the plinth upon which uh, electoral democracy is resting. And um, you have to do it first time correctly to have the trust of the people mm. in it. And, and we know it failed in so many places. So I couldn't find materials on that. I tried to look. One interesting case is Pakistan, right, which has the same, you can say, similar bureaucratic, of course, administrative legacy. And it's interesting to see that in Pakistan, the constituted assembly and later on the governments could not make their mind about the structure of the franchise. Mm. So initially they thought that they'll have separate electorates like in colonial mm. times uh-huh. in Western Punjab and um, mm. uh, uh, and, what was and one electorate yeah, yeah. in, in uh, East um, uh, Pakistan. And, but they couldn't agree about it. And when you can't agree about the structure or form of the franchise, of course, you cannot prepare electoral rolls. And if you cannot prepare electoral rolls, if you don't have proper list of voters, how can you have mm-hmm. elections? 
the Indian case is, is, you know, it's quite, it's an amazing thing because the Constituent Assembly adopts the principle of universal adult franchise in April 1947. Mm -hmm. It comes before the Assembly as part of the interim report of the Fundamental Rights Committee. They adopt it. And then, uh, you know, it's in a wake of a letter that was sent to Rajendra Prasad, the Secretary look at someone who said we adopted that maybe you know a work should be started mm-hmm. to do registration of voters and data on census etc and they look at it and they say yeah it's going to be a colossal work we better start preparing the the voters list so that elections general elections on the basis of other franchise could take place as soon as the constitution um comes into force i think this is uh important for people to remember where our processes come because we're very easy to um, despair over the state of our bureaucracy and the state of our elections. And at the end of the day, this is a monumental task that very few people seem to know about. You know, one unique thing about the process um, and its implications in the Indian case is the following, is that the experience of preparing the roles ahead of the constitution um, ended up with improving the constitution before it was finalized. What I'm meaning, when in the draft constitution of February 1948, the provisions for the direction and management of elections were such that each state of the union was supposed to have its own independent election commission. A little bit like the US <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. That was the idea, right? And the states, the argument was that states wanted to have their own, you know, enough autonomy to do that. And in the wake of the experience of registering voters on the ground and seeing how sometimes people, because they're coming from specific community or they speak this or that language, there can be disenfranchised at the whim of local official. The secretariat towards the end of the constitutional debate write a note suggesting that maybe, in fact, we should have a central independent Mm -hmm. election commission. And indeed, when Ambedkar presents before the assembly in June 1949, the revised provisions for the management of election in India, they're radically different. There's no more, you know, separate Mm. uh, election commissions for the state, but a central independent election uh, commission. And that's a result of actually, you can say, trying the provisions for elections on the ground, you know, trying them while there's still time. Is One one administrator, in Mm. fact, writes with these words to the secretariat about other things. He said, when there's still time to improve the constitution, to see what works, what doesn't work. That's interesting because that's changed how India is as a nation and ways that we still can't fathom. I have one last question for you. For um, anyone who is interested in um, the bureaucracy, the elections, um, what would you suggest reading, apart from your book, of course? Um, You know, there's a lot... 
huge amount of great work that has been written on the Election Commission of India from, you know, different perspectives from, A, you have books written by former chief election commissioners in India, and you have works by political scientists and by anthropologists uh, and on the Election Commission. I would suggest also to read sometimes the reports, the official reports that they Um, commission issues. I think the earlier reports had more material on uh, processes. So I, I'm just thinking there's this huge amount of work that has been written. Mm. Um, I think, you know, this book is, is one that tells the, the prehistory of the election the commission because it's the secretariat of the constituent assembly. Mm. Uh, it's, we, I would say, the, the undersecretary, the last undersecretary, P.S. Subramaniam, who was part of this group that oversaw this process, who then moves already in February 1952 start the formation of the election commission of India. The first chief election commissioner is being appointed in March 1950, Sukumar Sen. And in fact, the files, the basic files with which the first election commission of India works with are these files, right? The, the draft mm -hmm. rules. Otherwise, there's been a lot of work and very, very good work done and, you know, from different perspectives. So. All right. Thank you so much, Arna. Thank you for speaking with me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. With elections coming up this year, I do hope you get to read up on the Election Commission, its reports, and prepare yourself for the largest democratic exercise in the world. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter where my handle is at the rate Hamsini H or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to the States of Anarchy podcast on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast from. Next Tuesday, I'll be discussing climate change with Karthikeya Singh. I hope you join us. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Varma and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. 
We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content, and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising Is Dead. Advertising Is Dead.